Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason's source full of secrets, of which we are um, two fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason's source full of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So, Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. This episode of Rock On Tours was recorded before the passing of Taylor Hawkins. Hello, Gary. Hey, Guy. Uh, so, interesting one this week. Um, Rick Astley, a man of supreme reinvention. Yeah. Like he's reinvented himself quite a few times. I mean, going from being the sort of PWL puppy um, and making, you know, being part of that sausage factory of music, which actually is still probably making PWL a fortune as we speak. Well, apparently there was a there was a rumor at the time that it um, that if you did sessions like backing singers, and there were hardly any musicians, but if you did sessions for PWL, they didn't actually pay you. Because they didn't have to, because anything they did was guaranteed so much radio play that you'd get massive PPL payments and stuff. Wow. So that, I'm taking it you didn't yeah. play on any of those records. It was all synth-based. No. It's all synth-based, yeah. And then, of course, reinventing himself with that album Free later on, where he just sort of ended up writing the whole album and working with Elton John. And, and then with 50. Yeah, 50, uh, which is, yeah, very impressive. But then, you know, the greatest meme of all time. For the Rick Rolling. Yeah. Can we say Rick Rolling? Are you allowed to say that? It's not like rude or anything, is it? I don't, no, no, no. He's, he's, he's certainly, he's made his peace with it. Well, I didn't know what Rick <laughs> Rolling was until doing this research, but apparently I'm one of only, you know, I mean, billions of people have been Rick Rolled and, oh, and I, I haven't. Yeah, no. Well, I always remember the, the great one, we'll talk to him about it. it, was when the Foo Fighters Rick Rolled the Westboro Baptist Church and they turned up on a van all dancing to... Um, to, to never going to give you up outside, the, you know, those horrific, nasty, homophobic. Yeah. And, and of course, he's, he's, he's been on stage with Foo Fighters. They embraced he, him. They yeah. took him on stage. They did this amazing teen spirit version of, yeah. uh, of, of, of never going to give you up. And it, it, yeah. it, so, you know, the, as the generations ne- have moved never on. Never mind going to give you up. <laughs> uh, and then recently, he's, he's now singing Smith songs with the Blossoms. So there's yeah. lots of rock in what appears on the surface, to maybe not so rock. Exactly. And that didn't sound like a desperate attempt to placate our audience at all, Gary. <laughs> but I might as well say prog now, because it's not going to get mentioned anywhere else in this episode. That doesn't actually bother me. <laughs> Welcome to the Rock on Tours. 
Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hey, Rick. How are you? Rick. So good to see you. And you, my dears. We've all, we've all, yeah. my God. We've all got guitars got... behind us, I think. Have we? Yeah, well, we do. I've got... <laughs> yeah, yeah, you look like you're, you're in a proper booth there. No, I've got it's... massive hair envy guy. I don't know about you, but that quiff... Hey, I know, no, come on. That's, that's, that's why I was a bit late, by the way. I was getting the quiff ready. My glasses are still steaming up in the process. I wish I could be late for something because I had to be getting my quiff ready. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. He keeps his in a box. <laughs> yeah. Where are you, Rick? I'm at home, actually. This is my, um, this is like a um, converted garage at the back of the house. And um, it, to be honest, I've actually, I wouldn't say I've strategically put those guitars there, but every other corner of this room is a mess. And um, <laughs> so I thought I'd better just put the um Mate, we all, do strate- we all do strategic guitar placing. Guitar placing. Okay, all, great. We, yeah, it's, you know. Well, and if you had a studio like politicians home, put all their most Nazi books on their away. shelf. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've had this. We, we moved here about eight years ago. Um, we live near Hampton Court. And um, I've always had little setups at home. I had a professional studio once, like a full-on, you know, with a two-inch machine and all the rest of it back in the day and everything in Parsons Green. And... Um, I think because it had just been a, a boyhood dream, do you know what I mean, of messing around yeah, with yeah. gear over the years, and then when I could afford it, I just said sod it and went for it and had a studio built. And and it was just in that time when things were becoming digital and also just doing everything with the computer. And then all of a sudden, a desk and a tape machine, not for everybody, but for a lot of people, became completely redundant. You know, so let, let me just yeah. explain to our listeners: a two-inch machine yeah. means that the tape is two inches wide. Yeah. It doesn't it's mean not, it's that a, there's a little machine. Yeah, it's a fucking enormous. <laughs> Fantastic! Yeah, it's yeah. two inches. What it's, it's yeah. splendid very, German very, engineering! Very compact. Yeah, yeah, and um, and obviously we're of an age, all of us, that we grew up with going to studios where it was so expensive to do anything simply because the tape cost a fortune, the, the studios yeah. themselves cost a fortune, everything. And but I just still wanted to do it. It was like instead of, I guess, a lot of people drive a Ferrari into a pool, and I thought, well, I'll just. I'll throw the money down the drain by having a little studio. You know what I mean? Same sort of, same sort of um, relief. Well, I think. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think it's uh, one thing that really surprised me listening to your back catalogue mm. was the quality of production on Fifty. Oh wow! Uh, thank you. Which I think came out 2016, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank <clears> you. <throat> uh, and you know, and I'm and I'm looking for the producers, and it's just you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I you, did it all here. You, pl- you played everything. <clears throat> I did. Yeah, I did. It was kind of like. Yeah, it was a birthday present to myself, that record. I kind of, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I wasn't expecting to even necessarily make what, what we call a record anymore. Into I was making a collection of songs and I was going to see what happened. And I bought a new um, computer, I bought a couple of bits and bobs, and I got into this room. This was the first room in the whole of the house, actually, that we finished properly. And... Um, I just said, well, I'm just going to have a go at something because I was about to be 50 years old. And 
when thinking of a title for the collection of songs because Adele was obviously the biggest artist in the world yeah. and possibly still is. And I just sort of thought, well, I'll pinch that one before she gets there. And um, But not thinking that anyone would ever really hear it. I thought my mum would and a few friends and that'd be it. So. Oh, that's very modest of you, Rick. Well, no, I don't think it is, <laughs> if I'm honest. I, th- I, th- I think mm-hmm. making records today is is not yeah. what it was. And I think even, even if you've got a... You know, I thankfully went back to the label that I used to be with BMG and they were up for it and they really did an amazing job and, and really went for it. But, we, you know, you guys know the score. You, you can have a, a half-decent or even a great record and it still gets lost in the wind. Do you know what I mean? And, and so, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah. there's sort of two Rick Astley's in people's minds <laughs> or maybe there's only one and, and unfortunately, that, you know... There's not, about 12, there's about well, 12 in my mind, Gary, just so you know. Yeah, they've <laughs> missed... I, I, yeah, sorry, I, let me just, let me just go, follow go, this through, sorry. guy. They've sort of missed this this second one. I know, mm. actually, 50 went to number one. What mm. am I talking about mm. in 2016? It's a number one album. But this is a guy, if you'd just heard 50... You couldn't imagine this is a this is a bloke who was who was singing other people's songs ever mm. because the production, yeah. as we said, is incredible. Thank you. The songwriting is really beautiful. The Thank vocal you. stuff. I mean, it's as good as anything that was happening contemporary at that time. Thank you. You know, does that frustrate you a little bit? Um, no. If I, if I, again again just before I did that uh, and the years building up to it, let's say. I'd started to gig again. Um, I, I quit for like 15 years or more. And I know we're sort of shooting everywhere right now, but in terms of... But I quit, um, I don't know when it was, in the early mid-90s. I'd had enough of it all. I'm sure everyone had had enough of me, I can tell you that. And I, and I, we had our daughter by then. I developed a fear of flying, and I think that was just, just oh. a symptom of not wanting to go places and promote records. And... So I did nothing for years in terms of music. I had a little studio and I this, that and the other, but I didn't really release records properly. Not properly anyway, you know. And so when I'd gone through a period of also doing a lot of retro gigs with a lot of other artists, somebody you know very, very well, Gary. We won't get into that right now. But anyway, <laughs> lots, lots of different artists. Lots of different artists. And to be honest, I'm, I actually genuinely loved it because I started it because I, went, I got an offer to go to Japan to sing my old songs. And uh, my wife and our daughter really, really wanted to go to Japan. They'd both never been. I'd been at various times. and oh, Anyway, so we turned it into a family trip. And so I'd done a lot of, from that moment, which is, I think, uh, I think it was 2006, 2008, something like that. I, a little light went on and I started doing, joining in with other people at retro gigs and doing my old songs and everything. And I loved it. It was super easy. It was super simple. Um, I wasn't necessarily the headline. You know what I mean? Sometimes I was, sometimes I wasn't. And it was just great to go up there and do your 45 minutes or your hour slot if you were lucky. Um, and after doing that for a number of years, I kept thinking, I'm convinced there's still some more music left in me. <laughs> and when I was when 50 was approaching, which let's face it, is a big one, I just thought, sod it, I'm just going to have a go at making a record and we'll see. We'll see whether we release it properly, whatever. So just the fact of being what I would call in like a musical wilderness for a very long time and then doing essentially... And I know it's a dirty word to some people, but doing like retro gigs, I still felt I had something to not even prove, but something to offer. And I thought, how amazing would it be to sing some new songs in front of lots of people? Um, that feeling I craved again. And, and so that's why I did it, really. Yeah. But, but I, don't, I don't have any um, negativity about any of my life in music, you know, at all. Not at all. 
But also because you were writing all the way back to the PWL. Yeah, I mean, getting songs on albums. I was extremely lucky because when when uh, I signed, obviously, to Stock Aitken Waterman's production company, they had no intention of anybody. I mean, some of the artists did actually, to be fair, but Arnas always did. Um, Dead or Alive did, but a lot of the artists they worked with, especially later on as well. The idea was you're a bit like Motown. You turn up, sing that song, off you go. You know, and that was the deal. But like Kylie. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you know, and 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 anybody really, to be honest, I think pretty much everybody went through that building. I think towards Dead or Alive was very different because people knew them anyway. But I just think the combination of Stock Aitken Waterman and Dead or Alive gave us "You Spin Me Round," yeah. which I think is one of the best classic pop songs of, of you know. It's just yeah, amazing, right. uh, and, and loads of others that they did. Because um, f- funny enough, I first heard about them first came when they um, they produced Brilliant, which was the band that I was in, right? Okay, which, which was co-founded by Youth, my old mate Youth from right, Killing sure. Joke. Yeah, yeah. And they were very much a kind of cool underground dance label at that point. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. the, the weird thing was, I think they they hit a vein of gold or, or diamond platinum, whichever you call it, <laughs> and and they just mined it forever, kind of thing. They just went for it and. Um, but some of the, I mean, just think about that. Just, just what you've just mentioned there, and also Dead or Alive, uh, the Bananas, um, Princess, which the is bananas. one of the first ones. Sorry, I call them Banana Rama. Sorry, I call them the Bananas. So I love <laughs> I the love girls. That. But, but I think one of the first tracks they had out, I can't name it, was 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 championed by John Peel. Wow. One uh, an early electro dance track. Wow. Stock Aitken. Yeah, but so they they were that. they were a sort of cool undergroundy thing, and it well because Pete yeah. been producing loads of stuff for Stiff, hadn't he, for Stiff Records? Yeah, I mean to be honest, I don't know much about them before that really. I know they 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 did some a lot of high energy records and Hazel Dean, um, you know, they had some big hits with her in terms of like, as in a certain space if you want to call it that, if you know what I mean. I know obviously Hazel had proper hits as well, but I but I'm saying there was a there were certain artists that went through that building that ha- almost had an alternative career to what they ended up doing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, just just going back to the, because the, you, you mentioned about me getting a few songs on the first album. Um, Pete Waterman wanted me to sign to a major label because he kind of felt he needed to push the boat out a bit. And he knew Pete Robinson, who was the head of A&R RCA. And I also think he had wind that BMG were going to own RCA pretty soon. And because he's no mug, Pete Waterman. I mean, you know, people can say whatever they like about him one way or another, all the rest of him. He's a bit like Uncle Pete to me still, to be honest. And But that guy's switched on big time. Um, and um, so Pete said, look, he took me in for a meeting with Pete Robinson at RCA. And Peter Robinson said, well, I'm going to have to hear Rick sing. I can't just sign him because you believe in him, Pete, you know. And Pete said, no problem. Went back to the PWL studios and kind of said to Matt and Mike, Stott and Aiken, look, we're going to do a showcase with Rick. And they went, we're not, we're busy, we're making records. So I went home to a tiny little four-track studio where I'd done my demos up until that point. Again, where I played everything and put them together. Took my vocal off, came back down to London with a cassette, played that cassette in some crappy what have you, sang through an SM50M mic, which, which, after 58 mic, which is, if anyone listening, that's the standard bog mic you have when you go out and play live in a club or a pub, mm-hmm. um, through a, a crap old speaker with no reverb in the reception and sang these four demos that I had. And at the end of it, so there's Pete Waterman, there's Pete Robinson, there's the uh, head of PWL business, if you like, David Howells, my manager, da, da, da. so there's like four or five guys just looking at this kid in his in his check jacket from Next or whatever I had on. And and then Pete um, Robinson said, who wrote these songs? 
And without batting an eyelid, I, it, that fast, Waterman says, he's a great songwriter as well. Because in that flash, I think he realised, Pete Robinson thought, it'd be great if Rick wrote a couple of tunes as well. It'd be great if he wasn't just like, a, you know what I mean? So I got four songs on that first album. None of them were singles, and they didn't deserve to be, to be fair, but I got four songs on it. And it, and obviously it did really well, that record, and, you know, so... Before we get into the whole of making that record, and especially, mm. the, you know, the most famous of course. track, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's go back to you discovering mm. music as a kid. Wow, yeah. okay. Um, I have two older brothers and an older sister, and when I was about 10 years old, um, and I've, we've discussed this quite a lot, my sister Jane and I, um, she took me to the Free Trade Hall in Manchester and she took me to see two bands at different times but around the same time and I can't remember which one is first. I don't think she can. So it was either Camel and they were doing oh. and they were doing this ah. they were doing the Snow Goose tour, by the way. <laughs> oh my god. I did think we'd be saying the word prog in this yeah. episode. You you say the word prog like in every episode, man, by the way. <laughs> I've been listening, by this the is, way. I can't, we is, can't believe that you've brought the prog. There you go. Well We've got done. to. Let's not even go there. We'll get into that in a minute. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, Camel. Uh, let's not even start with magma and egg. We won't even go there. Um, um, so, Have an egg changed their name to duck. Yeah, Sorry, well, that'll come later. <laughs> um, so, and I, I, I went. I went to that gig with my sister, and and I was a bit like a fashion accessory. I think everyone was like smelling of patchouli oil and the whole thing, and it was like pretty. I wouldn't have done that hippy dippy. That's probably wrong, but to to me as a ten year old, it was amazing. And my sister Jane did various things like that. She took me to, we had a cafe, I think it was called the Talk of the Town in this little town that I'm from, Newton Willows. Um, it was in Earlstown actually, which is a borough of it, blah, blah, blah. She, she sort of introduced me to a lot of things without me realising it, if you know what I mean. And my sister Jane loved every kind of music. I'm, I'm talking about everything. So for instance, in her bedroom, she'd be playing Northern Soul when I was five, six, seven, eight, yeah. what have you. She'd I can be, hear that influence. She'd be playing Motown, obviously. So, for instance, let's say um, Marvin Gaye, uh, she'd go from that, but then she'd play all the David Bowie on the, the Orange. Was that, R was that RCA? Yeah, 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 yeah. All those kind of, and, and so I was just smothered in music from my sister, who was 10 years older than me. She loved the Beatles as well, so I, I kind of grew up on that without no realising. And then my, my brother John, who is three years younger than Jane, he, like, Night of the Opera was one of his favourite records and I could never touch it, but I was allowed to listen to it outside the door of his bedroom, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And <laughs> then white cover is and, a bit precious, right? Exactly. And then and then my brother Mike is three years younger, so when he started getting into certain things, and he, he was a massive Smiths fan. Um, but again, like, they were all quite eclectic in the music taste, to be honest, and I just got but, all but, of yeah, it. But C Camel sits outside everything that you've just said. Yeah, but my sister, for instance, my sister Jane... Um, and my brother John to some degree. I mean, put it this way, to give you a clue, right? I mean, people listening to this must be thinking, what the hell? But I know you guys talk about They always think bit, that yeah. every week, don't okay, worry. Okay, <laughs> so for instance, just as, as a clue, right? When Rick Waitman said, announced he was playing his Six Wives of Henry VIII outside the palace down the road from where we live, I went and bought 12 tickets straight away. Twelve? <laughs> because, because, yeah, because I knew I'd have to, you know, my brothers, my sister, and I'd, I'd have to get them minted, all of them. Mate. No, well, come on. No, but this is... Or were, you, were you touting? No, this was just had to be done because I thought he's never going to do this again. This is only like 10 years ago or what have you, right? Oh, okay, so, right. so okay, But I grew up on those records. Journey to the Centre of the Earth, Richard Burton, all of that stuff is just ingrained in me somewhere. All the early Genesis, I know you two are about going to wet yourselves now, but all the early Genesis, 
I knew it note for note, heart by heart, all, all, all you know, topographic oceans, all of that. God um, damn. Sitting in, sitting in, uh, you know, a friend's, you know, bedroom, listening to music that we'd all, we'd sort of pinched records from older Delida and then we'd be sat there listening to him and yeah. just mind boggling. Yeah. And, and then the other gig that she took me to, and I don't know which was first, was Super Tramp. For me, there was two. Yeah, but there's, there's, there's two things. There's, there are two things about those gigs, actually, um, in terms of a young kid going to them and seeing them, was that musically they were pretty mad. And even though Super Tramp were like amazing at writing like real, I want to call them pop songs, you know, just great classic pop yeah, songs. Yeah. They had m weird, crazy instrumental sections in those songs yeah, really long, that to yeah. me didn't sound any different to Mirage or, or uh, Snow Goose. It was just, oh, here's the flute solo. Yeah, I get that. I think you're right about Supertramp. Yeah. They, they, they did have a sort of a, a, a prog, uh, mu you know, musicality did, yeah. that was very strong. Yeah, in fact, I saw them supporting whoever's left of Supertramp now. I saw them supporting Yes at the O2 just before lockdown. Oh, wow, amazing. So they're in that, yeah. they're in that world. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I remember when I was at school, Crime of the Century was one of the biggest albums of my whole stay there. Yeah. Everyone yeah. was just great songs, them. great songs, I think. And also quite yeah. individual. It didn't, they didn't sound, I don't think they really sounded like anything else, partly because of the kind of weird solos and the mad arrangements and what have you. You know, it wasn't, it was just amazing and it blew me away. But just a side note, sorry, I'm flitting everywhere to be honest. I've had two coffees. No, I like, we like, we love okay. it. We like it. Two coffees and I'm on my third cup of tea. Oh, sorry, my, my third drink of the day, which is tea. Um, so I'm in Japan. You rock I'm in, and rollers. I'm in Japan about, what would that be? 15 years, well, whatever. When I was 22, 23, first tour, we're doing shows in Japan and we're all sat in this airport lounge, the crew, the band, everybody, the big gang of us. And someone said, right, we're playing first, first gig ever. So they're all going around to all these gigs and legendary gigs and blah, blah, blah. And it got to me and, and I had to stand, you had to stand up and say, and I said, well, it was free trade all. It was camel because I thought I thought it was camel. So Chris, who was doing our sound at the time, jumps up and Ken, who was doing our, because we had like a 35 mil projection, both jumped up and went, I did that gig. <laughs> and, and they were like looking at me like this pop kid from, you know, who was 22 years old, whatever I was. Yeah. And just thinking, what the hell was he at that gig? What, how does this, this doesn't compute? You know what I mean? We've yeah. just heard him singing all these songs, never going to give you up together forever, whatever. And somehow he's, it turns out his first gig was Camel. What the hell's going on? But that's having, that's having older brothers and sisters, I think. Were you a musician at that point? Did no. You, did you think, I want to play guitar? Cause no. Was it, it was drums you started on, wasn't it? Oh. I did start on drums, but no, I wasn't a musician at all. My mum um, and dad divorced when I was about four. And we ended up living with my dad. It's a complicated thing, and I don't mind talking about it, but it's just one of them things, and so we did. And my mum was not a, a prodigy, is a bit, bit much, really, um, but she was an amazing uh, piano player, and she could sight-read classical. But she could also, if anybody just started singing a song, she would, she would hear the key, go to the piano, and play the song. And that could be... I'm not saying she would know really super modern stuff, but she would play anything from like really old school to what have you. So we always had a piano in our house and my mum had a piano at her house and I tinkled on it, but I never really played it. My sister Jane played it a little bit, but we never really, we just didn't, I didn't, didn't cross my mind to be honest. I don't know why, it just didn't. And then about, when I was about 14, I always used to drum on the desk at school and I just loved the whole thing about drummers and I don't know what it was exactly, but... And I just wanted to get a drum kit. So my two brothers had motorbikes 
and I had a motorbike leather in anticipation of getting my first moped. And in anticipation of getting your first drum kit. Yeah, no, I swapped it for a drum kit, though. That's the thing. I swapped it for this old crappy Ajax three-piece, no cymbals, just a hi-hat, like pigskins. It actually had pigskins on the drums. It was that old, right? And, um, and my dad had a little garden centre, which had this pretty huge um, glass house, greenhouse. And he let me set the drums up at the end of that and play at night. And that's in glass. Just, oh my yeah, god! Yeah, it was, it was just stupid. The, the noise was ridiculous. Yeah, um, he let us rehearse there for a while in the first band I was in. But anyway, um, so yeah, so that's I just I just had this inkling that I just really wanted to play drums. I think I'd got on the, the school drum kit one afternoon and just never got off it. If you know what I mean, skipped a couple of lessons and got into trouble and just carried on playing old, old, old and, and thought I have to play the drums and that's what I got but into. Do you play anything at drums on your records now? Because a lot of those that you do are no, programmed. Well, no, it is programmed, yeah. I mean, we've recorded like kicks and hats and things because I like to do that sometimes just to, it just changes the dynamic of what, I don't know, I, I don't know how much reality there is to that, but it makes me feel different. I think, well, if it makes me feel different, it might make the listener different, you know, so, but I do spend... Did Taylor Hawkins, I, did Taylor Hawkins let you have a go of his kick? <laughs> no, that is something I have to rectify at some point in my life, yeah, but... Um, yeah, um, I've got I've got various drum kits, and I still love to play. And um, Simon, our drummer, who's great, and I love Simon. He 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 understands that I love it so much that he he turns up at sound checks very often. He can hear me playing the drums, kind of thing, because I have to get on the kit. And obviously, I've been so so lucky, and and it's kind of happened again recently to play venues that I would have done anything to play at, and and so I have to play drums in them as well. So, for instance, yeah, when we played yeah. Hammersmith Odeon a few years ago, it's the first time I played it. I had to play drums. I've got to. I'm not. I'm not. I know I'm dropping a big one, but I, I played drums at Wembley recently because at Wembley Arena because it's like I've got to play drums at Wembley Arena. You but know what I mean? Why don't you? What, why don't you do one in the set? Uh, we do, do a, occasionally. Do a Don we, do Don we, do a, we do occasionally play like um, uh, I've. I've got a God. We're flitting around here. I've got a massive um, love of. The album Highway to Hell. The song is amazing as well, but that album for me was a bit of a game changer in lots of. It's how I learned to play drums. Actually, um, I just played that record forever. I just kept putting the thing on and just playing to it yeah. forever. And I forget his name now. Phil. Phil. Forget their drummer. What his name oh, is. Oh my god, um, we had Brian Johnson on, didn't we? But I can't think what the drummer's called now. I can't Phil, think what the drummer's uh, called. Shout out to the radio somewhere. It'll come to me anyway. But, Phil Rudd. Yes, well, Phil, Phil Rudd, and he okay. is just. And and again. You, you mentioned it, so uh, the thing with Taylor Hawkins and obviously Dave Grohl and what have you, and, and I met those guys a few years back, and we got chatting about drums, because you do, and all the rest of it, and uh, and Dave Grohl was saying that he, his, his daughter, rather, was, was one of his daughters, was getting into playing drums and stuff, and we were talking, and I said, well, I, I learned to play to Highway to Hell, and he went, oh my God, because he's related to that record as well, and I think he's plunked his daughter in front of it, he said, and it's just an amazing record anyway, I love the record. But the feel of it is, and it bridges that gap for me of like when records were overproduced at one point, especially in rock where it's like, it is a rock record, but it doesn't feel that human anymore. The sort of Mutt Langer production. Yeah, but, yeah. But, yeah and well, I think he, but he, he, he might have produced Leopard, that. He did, but it was before he, he did the sort of Def yeah. Leppard thing. Before he went, oh, yeah, of course he did. It absolutely perfect yeah. meat and two veg kind yeah. of, you know, one guitar Humans. over here, one guitar over here. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and when the solo starts, one of the guitars stops. Yeah, <laughs> no. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's just you can tell it's music 
you know, made by people. It's, you know, and... Yeah, um, but Rick, Rick, so, Rick, Rick, yeah. Rick, I think I'm sort of peeking on your drum playing now and I want to talk to you about your voice because, oh, okay. you know, I mean, you're just like... <laughs> okay. the, the, it's like the elephant in the room now. <laughs> it's like okay. Your, no, your, but, it, but it's... In, you as a singer, I mean, this voice, this baritone... What do you call yourself, a baritone? I don't know, really. I've never... I don't even know what my range is, to be honest. I need to know what that is, but I don't. But yeah, I, that, I, I probably am more baritone. Yeah, there's that one clip, isn't there? Well, there's actually two, although one seems to be an instrumental of FBI, of your first band, playing at some right, okay. local event. And um, and it's there. It's completely fully formed. You sound so kind of... Gr- it's this really weird, yeah. weird sort of such a grown-up voice. In a, well, I, it is a, a bit guy weird, who it reminds me of, I think, a lot, is, is Luther Vandross. Oh my God! You know, I mean, and 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 in a particular that that when he was with uh, Changes, uh, Searching, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that that period just coming out, well, of, you know, when his first solo stuff outside of Bowie. Yeah, but his his he I've seen Luther Vandross live and whatever a couple of times, and and again he made some albums that were a bit of a game changer in terms of. Oh, you know, of I don't yeah. Never to be honest, and I've, yeah. I've spoken to exactly, and I've spoken to various singers and especially backing singers, to be honest, who, who, as we all know, are technically better than lead singers usually, um, and discussed his voice a little bit. And obviously, because he came from a, from being a session singer, so he mm-hmm. understood all of that as well. He was just on in a different league, really. I don't think I've actually heard anybody sing it all the way, right the way through the whole register in a way that he did. He seemed to have control over all of it somehow. And... Um, he is absolutely one of my all-time favourite singers, and he and, and and a bit more old school, like you know Bill Withers, Al Green. I like like most people who sing with a you know a soul inflection or what have you, pinch stuff off them without a doubt, whether we're conscious of it or not. That those guys taught us to sing. It's as simple as that. So to be mentioned in the same breath as him, to be honest, I'm very very honoured by that. But I mean, I, I'm not fooling myself. I know what he was. Uh, as as little as I do understand about how I sing, because I'm, I'm not very technically minded and I don't know how I do it, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, I know, I know exactly I'm not him. Mm. I know I'm not him. I'll tell you that. You don't um, look like him, but you are no, close uh, <laughs> at times. But, well, but how do, it, when did you discover that, that that's what you were good at? Well, I sang in school plays a lot and I sang in anything at school. I was kind of press ganged into the local church choir because the vicar came to our school, made us all sing and said, right, you're in the choir. Um, but we used to we used to earn a bit of money at the weekend at weddings and, and sadly funerals as well when we sang at that and so that was you know um, but again I actually think bizarrely and, it, and and the different worlds in lots of ways but singing in a choir even when you're seven eight nine ten eleven whatever I was sort of gave me a bit of a love of being around people singing and when I'm anywhere anywhere near uh, backing vocals and a, certainly like a proper gospel choir it just melts me it's just one of the most amazing things ever and when the the record 50 and what have you i went that way a little bit and we did some sort of you know choral whatever you want to call it kind of bv things and we have done it live where we've actually managed to get like 10 or 12 people in and do it we did this gig in 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 america in la and we kind of it was kind of like rent a choir if you like but we got these guys in and they were amazing they they really and 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 Dawn, who who is, is what I've worked with for years, Dawn Joseph, yeah, she, yeah, she, yeah, she yeah. did a tour with the with Spandau Ballet in 2010. Well, also because you had you actually had the Andre Crouch Choir, didn't you? Yeah, they sang on "Cry for Help." Yeah, and that that was I mean that was a moment. To be honest, I've got a story about that, and I know it's about telling stories, isn't it? So I want to just yes. tell this for a minute. 
So we're in Los Angeles. We're doing that song. We'd gone there to record a few things, actually. And also um, one of my favourite, favourite, favourite drummers, Vinnie Caliuti, played drums yeah, on yeah. it as well, which is just like, what is going on? This is a kid from Newton Willows. And I'm like, anyway, it was, it was just amazing. Um, so, so the choir turn up and they'd already obviously learned something and got something together. And they go into the, 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 you know, the big room and they're singing and it was great. And we took, a, we took it a couple of times, recorded it. Then they went out into the garden. I forget what this, this, it's a very famous studio, but I can't remember what it's called right now. But anyway, it doesn't matter. So they got into the garden and then one of them was out on the street for whatever reason and found this guy who was living rough, brought him into the garden. They got in a circle and prayed and sang for him. And at that moment, it wow. made me sort of feel amazing, but it also made me feel very small at the exact same time. Because I'm like, I, I, don't, I couldn't quite sort of compute or digest or what have you, what was really going on. Because there they are singing on my, you know, not belittling it, but pop song. Yeah. And then they're actually singing, literally kind of saving somebody, if you like, or at least that's wow. the intention. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my God. And ever since... Ever since I've sung that song, to be honest, which is quite a while now, um, and it doesn't come to me every night, obviously, but I do think about it, and I do think of the connection. Wow. Um, I do. And I, and I also, like I say, the first time of singing in a choir at a church, you know, Church of England, C of E, da 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 couldn't be more kind of different in a way. It's there's still a connection. There's, there's a human connection. Well, yeah, a lot of small connection. The two biggest records I ever played on both have the Andre Crouch choir on. Wow. Wow. Do, 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 what, what, I, what are they then? Uh, like a Prayer and oh Earth God. Song. And Earth could, Song. Could you just oh fill me in about, about the guy? Uh, guy, Guy, could you fill me in about Andre? No, not really. I, I don't mean, know anything. I, they, they, were, he, they were there. I think, we, I where's like he based? Prayer, where's they, where are they based? LA. Los Angeles, I think, right. yeah. And he, I think he was the definite, I mean, without a shadow of doubt, I'm, and I don't even know to be honest, I haven't checked whether he still does that. I don't know. I'm sure he does, but... Um, they were the choir to go to. Yeah. And that's why we went to Los Angeles for that couple of weeks. We, we tracked a load of things and then we went and we, we got certain musicians. But we went for that choir. We went for Vinnie Caliuti, like I say. Um, I know it's a great cast list on that. On that. In fact, there was, I was actually going to ask you about that, but we'll come to that later. But there's one yeah. name that's actually missing from that, that looks like, that, that with the sound of the record and the musicians of that time, the one okay. name that's kind of missing is Pat Leonard. Ah, right, okay. <laughs> like, yeah, well, listen, I mean, he's an amazing producer, incredible, and yeah. And, yeah um, but we, we, to be honest, we were, we were a bit on, it was a bit of a jolly, really, to just go, we had, you know, to be honest, it was, the, I, I had this weird feeling that I may never make records again <laughs> after that, because I'd left Stock Aching Water, and it was the first time I was making a record with instruments on it, if you know what I mean, and, and musicians, and obviously Matt and Mike are incredible musicians, but I mean, you know what I'm saying, actually going out into lots of different studios and pulling in whoever you want for a specific yeah. sound or a specific thing. And I just thought, this may this may be my one go, so let's go for it, you know, yeah. Okay, well, we've jumped ahead now, because I wanted to get back to, because it's, what seems quite, so you're in this, because FBI, was that mates from school, or...? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm still actually really good friends. In fact, I texted with him this morning. I was going to ask about player. that because yeah, yeah he's... Uh, he he lives down here as well. We kind of moved down to London at the same time. About three or four friends did actually. Um, not all musicians, and um, yeah, we 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 there was three of us. It was a three piece. We did a few police covers. Uh, so I sang so lonely from the drums. Sorry, guy. We, we were talking about voice, weren't we? I I, I I'd sung in choirs in a school. And then when I got in bands, I got in bands as the drummer. But because we started doing covers and 
I was sort of able to sing certain songs and someone else wasn't. And did it. So I used to sing So Lonely. I used to sing a couple of others as well. I can't remember. Yeah, but I've seen that, a film. I've that, seen. Hang on. You're playing Stuart Copeland and singing. That's pretty good. Yeah, I'm playing it badly, by the way. Oh, right, <laughs> I'm playing right, right. it badly. I, but I, I saw a video of FBI of you playing on stage at yeah. some some event somewhere. Right. And you were you were you were fully formed then, Rick. I mean, you had the uh, dance going. And yeah. No. That. Well. Well. Sang it's like interesting. A, like an elderly gentleman. <laughs> well, it's interesting because um, it, I think the footage you might have seen is from a battle of the bands. And the, the first band I was in was called Give Way. And that's the, the guy who I'm still friends with today who doesn't live too far away. We were a band at school. We were called Give Way. And we were called that because Jeff, the bass player, pinched a Give Way sign off the street one night when he had a shandy or two. I mean, we were only about 15 or 16 anyway. And, um, and we put that in front of the, the, the kitchen. Sure. We just said, that's amazing. We are called Give Way. That's it. You know? yeah, yeah. Better than and, OXO, uh, we... I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and we did a lot of, we did S-O. covers and we, we, we tried to write songs and things and stuff, but we did covers. Um, we did, uh, we, we, I think we played Transmission by um, Joy Division as well. We were quite eclectic, if you know what I mean. We played, um, and anyway, whatever. But so Pete then the saw band... you do this, right? Pete saw you do this. No, no. The next band I got in, proper band I got in was called FBI and they were like so there's still, a, poli- of, there's still a sort of police link there well yeah kind of yeah well there was, a, there was a there was <laughs> there was a KGB in our town as well to be honest but there you go um and um and we all knew each other anyway there were two schools in our little town and we all knew each other but that band I didn't go to school with any of those guys they went to the other school Catholic school I joined as the drummer but they were doing a lot of rock and roll sort of covers really and some Beatles and stuff like that and it was fun, but I didn't. I just didn't really love it. I kind of wanted to, you know. And I came to uh, rehearsals one day, and I borrowed a guitar from one of the guys, and he taught me three chords, kind of thing. The three chords, and so I wrote a tune, and um, and ever and I sang it, and everyone went, "Okay, well you're singing that then," and then that just sort of grew into me being the singer, basically. So we drafted in another drummer, and. I became the singer of that band. And then we went in for a couple of the Battle of the Bands. And the first one we went to, we went to this theatre in St. Helens. And we could, you know when you've got those little speakers in your, in your dressing room in a theatre? Oh, yeah. You can the hear tunnel, the stage. Yeah. The tunnel, yeah. You can hear the stage, yeah. Overtures and beginners. So, so we could hear this, well, we could, what we thought was the radio, right? Um, the song is, uh, everybody wants your love. What the song is that song? Oh, Rick Astley's oh, singing on our podcast. Yeah. Casey in the Sunshine Band. Yeah, Casey in the Sunshine Band. Yeah, so that's coming through the speaker, and then someone said, "That's not the radio." And and we went upstairs, and there was this covers band who were just phenomenal. Right, they were probably better than Casey in the Sunshine Band. Probably played like five <laughs> nights a week at the clubs in the north. Right, right. And we just shut ourselves. We just went. We can't go on after that. This is just a mess. And at this point, actually, I think at that one, I think I was still drumming and singing. And we and a couple of the other guys in the band sang, and I bought and I still own it a Doctor Fifty Five Roland rhythm thing. Oh yeah, I'd so we had, oh, we had yeah, yeah, so yeah. we had a little drum machine thing going, and and the songs that I'd written, I we had the drum machine on, I went up and sang them, and some bastard had altered the tempo for us. <laughs> so when somebody, I was at the front of the stage by this point with a microphone in my hand, and one of the guys pressed go on, and he went. Anyway. So we, and it was a disaster, basically. So we said, right, we have got to get our shit together. So, um, and there was another young band on. They were a couple of years older than us. And they all had black trousers and they all had the same colour shirt and they all had the same, and they looked like they knew what they were doing. So we all went into Manchester. We all kind of like scraped our money together. And we went to this 
Uh, it's called Affleck Palace in Manchester, and it makes it's all little stalls and what have you, and yeah. younger oh, right. designers make all stuff. So we all got these shirts. They weren't exactly the same, but they looked like we were in a band. Do you know what I mean? And we had black trousers. So that's when we started, right, we're going for White this. White socks, and I, I noticed. Well, come on. And I said, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a go at writing a song that at least, it might be rubbish, it might be whatever, but you won't be able to sort of deny it's whatever it is. And it was called Shake Your Ass. And... Um, <laughs> And so we had it. We had it. So we had a little. We had a little dance to it, as you say. The guys used to do the sort of, you know, like the rockabilly sort of dance. Oh, thing. I saw it was like a shadow. Yeah, and then I used to play like some massive big yellow tom toms along with Chris, the drummer, the new young drummer that we had, and and we just thought we were it, and we just thought who who could possibly not what year? Like this. What this year is, is this? This is probably this has got to be eighty five, eighty six, possibly right. eighty six, maybe eighty five, eighty six, and Waterman had come up to be one of the judges on this Battle of the Bands. And he saw something, I don't know what he saw, but he saw something. So he, he got he got four bands, not from that actually, just other bands and what have you. Somebody put this showcase together and we were in it. And he's never told me this and I don't know whether he did that because he wanted just to see us or whether he just, whatever, I don't know. But a few bands went and did this showcase just for him. He literally turned up to this working men's club where we just all set up and done this thing. And that's how I met Waterman, and that's how the thing of me just signing to him happened. Because he saw something in my voice, not the shake your ass, I don't think, but in my voice, that he felt he could mould into something that was possibly going to be a hit record. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals, and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants, and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. This is what I find odd, Rick, is that so this guy goes, yeah, it's the kind of like, yeah, come to London, I'll make you a star. I'm going to yeah. sign you. And so you leave your band, move to London, and then make tea in the studio. Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> did not your mum? Did your dad? Not quite, not quite what you had in mind. Or? Yeah, not exactly. your mum and dad must have been a bit concerned about you moving in with this yeah, bloke well, from Lon- in London. Yes and no. I mean, uh, I uh, the first, the him. first, the first time I went down to Pete's, um, it was really early days. They had one studio at the time, and it was. I mean, to me, it was incredible. It was a, it was a twenty-four track recording studio. It was amazing. Mm. It was London, just London, E London. It was amazing, you know. But it was early days. It really, really was, and. I think they were working on the Princess record, I think, the Say I'm Your Number One record, which did go on to be a number one. I don't think Dead or Alive were there at that point. Anyway, a few months went by, and, and that to me is like an age. It's literally like, this is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. 
but they were busy, you know, and and also I don't know whether Pete at that point, I don't know whether he had lots of money to just throw around and sort of say, here's a deal, kid, even if it was for 25 grand or something, which was a lot of money back then, but still, do you know what I mean? It, it, it couldn't, I don't think they had money, I don't think they had money to throw around to sort of just say, right, we're going to make this record and we're going to put this kid up in London and we're going to, you know what I mean? I don't think it was like mm -hmm. that yet. But you were on the and, back burner making tea, is that right? Yeah, I hadn't signed the deal at this point. The second time oh, I went okay. down, they were working on the Dead or Alive record. I ended up signing a deal. And I think the deal was just a very small production deal. And in fact, as the story goes, I seem to remember that um, you could do a thing called a YTS, which is a youth or a YOP or whatever, a youth opportunity oh, you scheme you, thing. Yeah. yeah, youth training scheme. Yeah, yeah. Youth training scheme. So they put me on one of them and gave me a bit of, uh, maybe they gave me a bit of money as well. I can't remember. Anyway, so I was coming down on the train, really. And I was just kind of hanging out in London. I ended up staying at Pete's flat, which was in Crouch End, which was miles away from, from um, you know, where the studio was down was in Barrow, Surrey. wasn't it? it was yeah, Barrow, Barrow, yeah. yeah. And um, it was just a mad existence. And I used to come in to the PWL studios, sat next to Pete in his Porsche, while he was on his massive great big 80s phone, sometimes charming, but sometimes screaming at people. And just talking this language that I had no concept what it even meant because it was part, it was part about money and business and bank loans and you know yeah. funding, and it was also partly record label deals and this that and the other. And don't get me wrong, it wasn't like I was earwigging. I was just sat next to him. It was odd, you know. And so that in itself was a was a kind of a was quite a great experience to see that it is a real business. This is a business. It's not just you know the lights and the smoke and the did you feel he understood the kind of music you wanted to make? Did, did well, the other, or did the other guys understand it? Well, interestingly, right. This is so. It's, I, w I wish I'd done notes to be honest to do this podcast because it should have been more chronological. Right. Pete had a girlfriend, believe it or not, in the little town that I'm from, and it's a tiny town. And she had a hairdresser's above or below. I can't remember which. A record store, and I think that's how he met her because the guy who had the record store was a DJ called Kev Edwards, and he used to import records from America. And in Newton Le Willows, that's hyphenated, by the way, um, yeah. we used to have a, well, we still do a cricket club, and they used to have Monday nights, which was under 18, and Friday nights, which wasn't. And on Friday nights, Kev Edwards sometimes used to be the DJ. And we could get into both because we were that age where we could still hang out with our mates and younger girls and what have you, but we could also go to the over 18s and have a few jams. And... Um, Kevard, which used to play records that like early Luther Vandross, uh, all kinds of records that were just, yeah. to us, were just like so soulful and so kind of... But the thing is, we all used to dress up to go there. We used to put jackets and ties on and dance in rows. And we were just doing what the older guys and girls were doing, to be honest. Do you know what I mean? We, we just followed them kind of thing. This was a, like a whole adventure to us. And Waterman, I know for a fact, I didn't know him at the time, and I'd never, I wouldn't have been able to know he was there, but I know he's been to some of those nights. And I think he... And he knew that I loved Luther Vandross and people like that and James Ingram and those kind of things. And and I think that's where he saw me a little bit is being, you know, a blue-eyed soul, whatever you want to call that kind of thing. And, and obviously, I think Britain definitely has a very, very, very strong tradition of producing singers who sing in a way and are influenced completely by America. Yeah. You know, I know, I know we've got the other side of it. We've got Bowie, Morrissey, whatever you want to say, but we've also got this thing that is like, it's almost like we grew up on an island in the middle of the Atlantic somewhere. It's really well, weird, do you know what I mean? What you I find it interesting when I talk to Americans, American musicians, especially how they, do, how they don't understand how, how if any of us English kids 
grew up with Motown was absolutely a part yeah. of our DNA. Yeah, you know. more than theirs, a lot of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and you exactly. think that you know Beatles early Beatles tracks did they they did Isley Brothers songs and yeah. you know obviously the Who hugely yeah. influenced by Motown yeah. I mean that's but 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 you're right I mean everyone from Cliff Richard to Mick Jagger have been trying to sing like Americans yeah it, to be honest unless it's unless your lyrics are a certain way and unless you have a very I don't know how to put that really. I mean, there's been singers, obviously, and there still is to this day, who sing in a British accent or wherever they're from, Scotland or whatever it is, right? Yeah. But the truth of it is, you just someone gives you a microphone and you just start singing with an American accent. I don't know yeah, where that comes but, from. But like, this has come up before. But you, hmm. you northern types, you have right. an advantage in that you say dance, romance, and this stuff anyway. So you yeah. you don't have to do the pretentious repronunciation that southern. Yeah, that's very, southern that's very true. And also, yeah. and also, you were coming out of that very credible northern soul, sort of love of of yeah. up-tempo, yeah, passionate I, dance music. Yeah, but to be honest, I think that's just that just came from being around it a bit through my sister and stuff. I wouldn't, I, I couldn't. I've done it recently. I've actually gone on 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 Spotify or what have you and sort of gone, okay, what are the ten biggest Northern Soul songs? Because when somebody says to me, oh, you, you know, Wigan Pier was down the road and all the rest of it, and Wigan Casino was down the road, which is obviously where the big Northern Soul thing was, they think, oh, you must have really been into it. I'm like, well, I know some of it, and I know somewhere it's inside me because my sister hammered it forever, you know, and. Um, but I wouldn't say I know much about it, to be honest. Um, and even Motown, I don't think I'm like, I, I, I love what I know, but I wouldn't say I've gone that deep into it. You know, one of our favourite things to do, I don't know why it just became a tradition, is we always play Motown records at Christmas. I don't know why it is. We decorate the tree. I think our daughter loved it when she was young and she's, she's 30 now and she's still, you know, so we just play Motown at Christmas. I can't tell you why. I don't know why that makes sense. No, because no, there's a lot of it is inherently Christmassy somehow. Right, I, I may, get maybe that, so. Yeah. Yeah. But, but Rick, when was the first time you heard that backing track for Never Gonna Give You Up? I mean, oh did, was that well, literally <clears throat> the first thing you ever sang for them in the studio? No, not exactly, no. Um, we we tried a couple of different things. I sang, they were doing some songs for a film, a British film that didn't really happen to be, I didn't really go anywhere. And I sang a song on that called Modern Girl, I think it's called. And again, I never sang it publicly anywhere. I just sang it, you know, just sing this, will you? I did, dump, that's it. It was a bit of experience. I also did a, a track that I sort of co-wrote with two of the younger guys, the, the kind of like, Second team, if, you, if if that's not the right way of putting it, but whatever, a guy called Phil Hardy and a guy called Ian Kerner, oh, yeah, who yeah, went yeah, on yeah, to produce, yeah. Yeah. produce yeah. loads of records, and Phil mixed so many of their records and was a massive part of giving them their sound, to be fair. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we, I did a duet with a girl called Lisa. And again, Waterman's idea behind that, I think, was, with no disrespect to Lisa, but because obviously I was signed to them, was that we're going to get Rick's voice in clubs and they just they don't know it yet. So it'll oh, be there. Course. And DJs yeah. will go, well, played that record. It only came out on a white label. There was no pictures. There was no what have you. So I had done a couple of little kind of testing things. But RCA, I think, were just getting the ump because they sent some money over, you know, many moons ago and had this kid signed and thought, well, when are we going to get to hear something? And I think Waterman was under a bit of pressure and we tried a couple of things. I sang a cover of uh, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, which ended up on the second record, like a, mm -mm. a sort of totally slowed down version of it. Again, I think that was a tiny bit like, well, Paul Young's had a big hit, but we're doing a ballad version of, why don't we try that? Anyway, so we tried a couple of different things, but the first time I heard Never Gonna Give You Up was really weird because Phil Harding had been kind of brought in to be 
sort of programmer to the, to the building to some degree, I think, to Matt and Mike, but also to work with Phil and different things. Um, so Ian Kernel comes in. I literally help unpack the Fairlight that Waterman had mortgaged whatever wow. it was to buy. I literally helped him get it out of the box. He was a coffee addict, Ian, and I'd always have the coffee on for him because I was being like a tape-up tea boy as well. You know, I ran around, got the sandwiches, as a bunch of other kids did, and, you know, one of which is still one of my closest friends today. Um, it, was, it was amazing to be there, to be honest. It was amazing. They were making hit records week in, week out. And as young kids... I just thought that was happening in studios everywhere. I just thought, well, you know, if you go to these other studios I've heard about, that must be... And it wasn't. People were in there making an album for four months that didn't see the light of day. And these guys were <laughs> kicking them out every week. Anyway, I'll get back to Never Gonna Give You Up. So, Ian was given this room down in the basement. Nice room, but down in the basement to set up as his programming suite. So he gets it all running. He's playing around. He's got a few things on the go. He's got a few, you know, external keyboards, all the rest of it. It was early, early technology. Um, Mike Stock comes down sits at the keyboard, puts the chords in to Never Gonna Give You Up, sings in the melody. I think maybe um, Ian might have noted that melody down and whatever, just so he knew what he was working against. He was kind of singing the melody to me, Mike, a little bit as well, but then told him what he wanted, how he wanted it, had some ideas for this, and do do we want it to be a bit like this, and maybe a hint of Philly strings, and this, that, you know, you know. Mike Stock, by the way, take nothing away from Mike Stock or Matt Aitken, I've worked since with a lot of people who are great musicians and very, very, very together people. They were incredible, I think. They were so, so, so underrated at how great they were. Um, but anyway, um, so then Ian starts to build Never Gonna Give You Up. And I'm sat there getting the biscuits and the coffee. <laughs> and, and I just sat there on his shoulder just watching him do it. I'd never seen a fair like before. I had no idea. It was just, it was mind-blowing technology as you guys I'm sure used them and yeah, back yeah, in the yeah. day and all the rest of it it was a whole new world of making music with a computer and in a computer but and again Ian is is one of the most gifted people I think I've ever he's just incredible Ian Kernel and that's the strings thing and the brass I think is Ian and to me it's such a massive part of the song because when those strings come in at the beginning it's just like boom you're yeah. off you know so I was cool. just going to say, there's a, something, and this is annoying because I could have researched this easily. I didn't have time no. to listen through to everything. Sure, of Because <laughs> isn't there a song on the, another song on your first album that uses the same backing track or it's the same thing backwards well, or something? Well, I don't, know whether it's, I don't know whether it's exactly on that, but obviously being, having been a tape op, i.e. getting tapes ready, putting them on the machine for a session and all the rest of it, because they use, they use pretty much the same equipment all the time like the same drum machine a Lin 9000 as it was in the day and they had some samples going even at that point you could trigger samples from delays and all that I'm sure you know all about that um, and they could do you know but they had us they had they were building their format if you like you know and they had certain keyboards that they trusted and went to like a DX7 obviously was the bass sound and, yeah, and yes. just stuff that they used and um, so when they put on a, a, a tape if it had like a 116 or 120 BPM sort of drum thing, and they go, well, let's just start with that. And right. and the fact that that might have been someone else's record last week, who, who knows? Right, <laughs> Maybe right, Pete right. would, would pick what about the, what the form, kept form records, wasn't it? What about the lyrics? Kind of. Were they coming, did they sort of come out in the room to, uh, at the same time? I don't know whether Mike, heard, Mike and Matt and Pete, I don't, I don't know whether they'd written the lyrics at that point. I don't know whether they... I've got a feeling they had a rough idea of the lyric. Yeah, I seem to remember him singing it like a song, but don't quote me on that. You'd have to ask Mike Stock. But I think 
Yeah, it wasn't. I don't know whether it's like 100% fully formed. But then what, what used to happen, although, and the way I did all mine, and, and I observed other people doing it, even though we were always cleared out of the room when people did the vocals, but you're around it enough. Mike Stock used to just sit you down at the desk. He'd put the track on and he'd just sing you the song like three or four times. And you'd sing along with him. And then when you weren't getting it quite right, he'd sort of say, no, 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 right. when you get to the middle, it's, you know, whatever, and give you a little... Then they'd send you in the booth and then he'd, he'd work the shit out of you. Because <laughs> the secret to this song and why it's still long-lasting, I think, is it has a really light, up-tempo, you know, sort of dance soul thing going on mm. that we've heard, we've heard a lot of times. But then this voice comes in that's got so much gravitas, confidence mm. and depth not not like anyone else in Britain singing at that time. I Thank mean, you. certainly not like Pete Burns or, and, but, and, yeah. or, or but, you know, I mean, Jason or any of those. Yeah, I mean, but I also think... it's a perfect chorus. It's the, the it's the the words of that chorus are a perfect list, which is they why it's been it. so brilliant to use. I remember like people do jokes in election manifestos, like vote for him, yeah, yeah, yeah. or you could vote totally. for Rick Astley because he will never give you up, let Absolutely. you down, run around, or just say, you know, it's a totally. perfect. It's become it's become so, another thing on the internet, obviously. But yeah. but I think I to be honest, I still feel this today. I think I got the best song Stock Aitken Waterman ever wrote. And obviously other artists have their right to, to disagree with me, but I think that's the best one they ever wrote. And, yeah, yeah. Um, the syncopation and, and I, in the chorus is great. Just It's it's just, and I, well, I also think what's kind of interesting, because to put a bit of flesh on it, so, we, so they did that and they've got it all going. And at some point I go up and do a vocal on it, but believe me, it went through so many changes you would not believe. So if you oh. listen to the baseline of it, I'd love it's to hear like, an early one. Actually, probably it's fast. To be honest, it's something I've been thinking about a lot recently because, yeah. well, because as you get older and you just, you know, um, and I've met Ian a couple of times at gigs and stuff, and I don't know whether he ever took home a cheeky cassette at one point. But, um, but so the baseline is very much like a song called um, it's, uh, it's, it's Colonel Abraham's Trapped. Called, trapped. Yeah, yeah. Which, funnily enough, Trapped was uh, that Colonel Abraham's track was produced by Richard James Burgess who produced the first two Spandau Ballet albums oh my word honestly wow that's incredible yeah. Yeah. wow crazy and it was in it was I mean, obviously which is why Gary's now suing you yeah and was, <laughs> and was in Landscape was which was an electronic yeah. kind of jazz wow. sort Einstein, of band Einstein and Gogo yeah, yeah I, remember, and Gogo. I remember Landscape and, yeah, and yeah, we're way yeah. ahead of the game on right. Electronica Wow, incredible! Anyway, crazy. Yeah, 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 I didn't realize. I, I thought that'd be like some Chicago sort of whatever no, sort yeah. of hip hop. You know, yeah, crazy. But it's—I mean, I love that record. It's a great record, and I, and I do think, to be fair to Pete um, Waterman, that is, I think he he did want to make a record for me that he knew I would love. I think that was a big a big part of it for him was that he wanted me to sort of feel that I could go out and sing it because. I was green as grass. I was really quiet. I was pretty shy, to be honest. I felt completely out of my depth. I'd never even spent time in London before, never mind in studios and everything. And I kind of feel that they messed around with that song so many times you would not believe until they came up with the version. And I know since that Mike and Matt weren't completely convinced that my voice on that record, or any kind of record, to be honest, but it was just a mismatch. It was like, what are we doing? This kid looks 11 years old. He's got reddish hair. He, he, what, what, how can you do We can't release this. What are you doing? You know? And, and interestingly, it went to number one. And the week it went to number one, we made the video for it. So the only time people saw me was on Top of the Pops. 
in, in, in the couple of times I went on Top of the Pops to try and get it up the chart, as it were, right. obviously. So if you hadn't been, and I know everyone watched Top of the Pops, but if you hadn't watched it, you hadn't seen me. Yeah. So, right. I, and I don't know whether that was on purpose, but we're talking about RCA Records here and we're talking about PWL. They'd had a few hits by then. They knew how to do it, yeah? And yeah. I'm like, I didn't think much of it. I just thought, oh, you know, they've just thrown it out and we'll see what happens. And it just went boom and, and they weren't but, ready for it. It's like, we better make a video. The one thing that always sprung to mind with me with that video is it's, you are literally, it's like you're doing a next catalogue shoot. Well, all the clothes in it are mine. All the clothes in it are mine. I haven't got any money at this point, obviously. And I just the raincoat and the polo neck, right? They're all mine. They're all mine. All of it. Every single item of clothes. I turned up with a hold all with clothes in it and went, well, what do we do now? And then that's three strong. That's three strong looks, Rick. Double denim. Double denim. What happened to that coat? Have you still got it, Rick? No, it drifted away. I've told this story before. It's um, right, yeah. I did a, I did an outside broadcast in Northern Ireland uh, with um, Eamon... Um, too much coffee this morning. Presents on the morning show, you know. Eamon, Holmes. Eamon Holmes. Holmes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holmes. Of course, yeah. Lovely fella, lovely fella. He was doing a radio outside broadcast there. And the record by this time was like kicking off big time. So we were kind of getting mugged, both of us, you know. And before I know what I'm doing, my jacket's being pulled off my back. And it's like, it's just drifting away. I can just see this raincoat going like... Over the crowd. <laughs> I bought that. Who's and, got it? Um, yeah. And I have no idea. Somebody in Northern Ireland. It's in, someone, it's in someone's grandma's... Um, oh, so and, it, should um, v, it should be in the V&A. Well, I mean, there you I, go. I have one of those coats because Mick Jones wore one with BAD. It was, right, it was okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, you know, I think... Money allowing, I think I could have really got into clothes, I think, at that age. But we didn't have any money, so we just kind of emulated what we saw in in the cheapest way we could. And and um, but what I still can't believe now, thinking about it and talking to you guys, is that we went to make a video, and I had no idea what was going to happen. Not not a clue. Not and like it, well, here's the treatment. Here's the this. Is it that? It's just turn up because I think also because that record took off so quick, it was it was ridiculous. It was just ridiculous. Yeah, but just so. think that this kid turns up with a plastic bag full of clothes. And what you did that night uh, has had over a billion views on YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Yeah, it is pretty weird. To, to, I, what, to so it was that one, one seventh of the, the planet? the greatest meme of all time, you know. Really. Yeah, So, it's, but I think the thing is, <laughs> that's the weird thing about that whole thing with Never Gonna Give You Up, is that I've got my memories... And I've got my universe of it, if you know what I mean. And to be honest, bluntly, it's paid for me to have a great life, really. And it and it still is, if you know what I mean. And I don't want to be crass and bring money into it, but I kind of like bringing money into it, to be honest, because I'm fucking grateful for it. I really, really yeah, yeah, am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I, I don't ever want to have that leave me, if you know what I mean. I I I, I would have I would have probably had a go at doing it anyway. Obviously, I think any of us would because you don't you don't do it for the money. Obviously, there's the fame, the money, the what have you, but that's not really why you're doing it. It's just something inside you. But having made some money out of it and having that song and and some that came after it, obviously, kind of take care of me for the rest of my life. It's just been something I'm eternally grateful for, and I just I, I refuse to let myself forget it. And um, so so I have I have my universe of it, if you like, but then it's got this other thing sort of simmering away 
where it's been used for so many different things, like you say, some loads of fun things and the Rick Roll thing and everything. Uh, we're going to just um, have to talk about the Rick Rolling now. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, sure I, mean, this is, I mean, I just thank God your name isn't Dick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, could be. You listen to my friends, but anyway, let's not go there. Um, yeah, because yeah. I didn't know much about Rick Rolling, but it's no, basically no. this where, where people get sent links to look for something that yeah. they think is serious or is about something else. And when they yeah. click on it, they're, they're sent straight to a video of Exactly, you. yeah. And they're tricked into watching Never Gonna Give You Up, basically. And um, But I think the thing is, as well, it's been, you know, we, we get, we get uh, offers for the song to be used or even the video to be used in loads of different things all the time. And, um, you know, it's been in Fortnite. They've even done the dance, the sort of Rick Astley shuffle in Fortnite and all the rest of it. And there's a part of me that sort of thinks, well, I, well, I remember when it very first started, the first Rick Roll kind of thing. And a friend of mine uh, who lives in, in Los Angeles, actually, he Rick Rolled me. And I'm like, I was on holiday at the time in Italy, actually. And I'm like, okay, whatever. So I just replied back, what? Um, he did it again. And I'm like, okay. So I got him on the phone in the end because I just thought this was ridiculous. And um, he said, so you don't know about this? I'm like, I do have no idea what you're talking about. Why do you keep sending me my own video kind of segued into, you know, somebody doing something else, whatever it is. And he kind of explained it to me. And I still didn't get it, to be honest. I didn't get it for quite a long time. I don't um, think I get it, to be honest. <laughs> no, no. Well, well I don't. But it, but that's we're probably not of the age to get it, to be fair. But um, but it's sort it of morphed. It started on 4chan, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's but it, it's just morphed into something else completely. And I think early on, I kind of said, I have to be really careful not to get to embrace that too much, if you know what I mean. Yeah, because I'd be worried as an artist, is this Mm. a piss take or is this, is this, is this being, or is this, should I be just accepting that people are just using my video as a sort of massive distraction from, uh, from the horrible side of life, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I agree. And I think, to be honest, I think, I think a lot of artists of a different temperament or mindset would have been devastated, if I'm honest, because it's sort of taking what you regard as your thing and your art or whatever you want to call it and throwing it into this into the lion's den of like nonsense right but i also can see and again you see i was kind of retired at the time i wasn't even gigging at the time i wasn't really do you know what i mean so I was, it, it it was just happening it was like what the hell and then it was around that time that i did start gigging actually funnily enough because we had this crazy offer like i say to go to japan and do the gigs and i did this I even said that when I walked out and did those gigs, the first night out in Tokyo or whatever it was, and I kind of said, um, this is the biggest karaoke happening in Tokyo tonight. Let's get on with it, you know, and sang the songs. And and I kind of think that it, it's sort of, it's definitely helped. It's definitely helped with my... Uh, social media presence my of course it has it's massive i mean you went on tiktok the the first the first kind of i don't know if this was your first being aware of any connection with the foo fighters was when they is actually a brilliant political statement when they rick rolled the westboro baptist church exactly and i I kind of think that's basically like turning you into the clash or something yeah i don't know about that tell me about it it was well, they, no, they, it, it was protesting through joy, you know, which is yeah, of course. Well, the thing is that that those guys have picked a fight with Foo Fighters, I think, and picked a fight with everyone. Yeah, with everyone. Yeah, but it, them in particular, I think at this. So, in other words, when they were they went as you say, they went and rickroll them on the back of a pickup truck, mm. which which was for for me was just incredible, and I, I was just like, I don't I don't know what's going on, but I'm loving whatever's going on. I'll just I'll just leave it at that. 
Yeah. And um, and a couple of the guys in their crew, like there's one or two of them, just massive as well. And it's like, and they're all singing this song. I'm like, okay, whatever. And then, so obviously they knew the tune and everything. And then I think they 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 learnt, um, actually I'm not sure what the sequence is. But anyway, I got to do a huge big festival in Japan again, funny enough. A lot of great things have happened in Japan, but there you go. And... Um, and I, I, I am a bit of a closet rocker. I play drums in a three-piece band with some friends and we only play like punky rock stuff, basically. That's all we do. And we only do it for charity because that's how we get away with it. And I play drums and sing and we have a bass and a guitar. So we play a few Foo Fighters songs. We go from Pistols Clash right the way through to anything that's like, you know. We're called the Luddites because if it, if it doesn't happen immediately with no technology, it ain't happening. And um, <laughs> so I am a big fan of theirs anyway. And I've... I've you know, I love Nirvana, obviously, who doesn't? And I think all the way through Foo Fighters, it's been a really interesting journey with what they've done. So we're there, and I said to my wife and some of the guys that, that, you know, wanted to go, I said, look, we can probably get on the side of the stage if we just wing it and just go up there. So we're kind of wandering up to the stage, and, and their crew and their, all their security and guys were amazing. They just said, just plant yourselves wherever you want. We'll get you some drinks. You're cool. It's all fine. And then suddenly they came out, and they were just... They just there wasn't a roof, but if there would have been, they would have taken it off. The place just went mad, you know. And uh, and it's pretty ferocious the way they play live. It's full on. And so we're just absorbed in it. I've had a few beers by now because my set was way before in the afternoon sort of thing. And one of the guys, who's one of the guitar players, Chris Shifflett, comes over and gives a big hug to a friend at the side of the stage. So we all moved out of the way so we could do this and everything. And then a few, little while later, a couple of songs later, Dave Grohl's coming over. So we're all kind of moving out of the way thinking he knows this guy and he's about to give him a hug and he comes over to me. <laughs> and um, so I was like, okay, what is going on? And uh, he just gave me a big hug. He said, hey, I'm Dave. And I said, I'm Rick. And that, you know, and he said, hey man, cool. Walked out onto the stage. And I'm like, okay, that was odd, but great. You know, what a lovely, what a lovely thing to do, you know. A couple of songs later, somebody from the crew comes over and he's got a mic in his hand, moves the barrier. Gives me the mic and he said, Dave wants you out front. I'm like, oh fuck you know. And, I, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, he's probably gonna invite me out and sort of say, You never guess who's here, everybody. It's that dude. And that's all I think he's gonna do. Like, here's Rick, you know, with Rick rolled you. What or whatever. I don't yeah, know what yeah, he's yeah. thinking. I've no idea what he's thinking. No idea at all. And by this stage, I'm jet lagged to buggery and I've had a few beers, right? So I'm just thinking, whatever. So he whispers in my ear, he says, So we're gonna do your tune, but it's gonna sound a bit like Teen Spirit. And I said, okay. <laughs> so so they just steam into it. And I'm like, I don't exactly know. I don't know what to do. There's 50, 60,000 people in a baseball stadium in Tokyo. I don't, I don't actually know what to do. So I was, believe me, I was not trying to be rock and roll. I just didn't know what else to do. I just went to the front of the stage and screamed for all I was worth. Come on, you motherfuckers. Yeah. And, then we, and, then, and then we sang Never, Never Gonna Give You Up to, to sort of the backing of... Smells like Teen Spirit. Yeah. It was just weird. And and they jammed it in the room. They have a little jam room before they go on. I found this out later. They jammed it in the room and said, if we see that dude, we are definitely playing this. And sure enough, they saw me, so they definitely played it. There must have been a bit of you at that moment thinking, this is the most credible thing ever. This has just um, jumped my career into another area that I never you know thought what? I'd I, become I, part I, of. I, I, honest to God, I have I've thought about things like that since because people have said to me sort of like oh my god so you've met Dave Grohl and you've hung out with those guys and you know and I thought we'd had a few we really had had a few do you know what I mean because we were just going to get on a long probably flight, just flight, as well. flight home the day after yeah and I got out I was so kind of like not in my own world at all 
and I was I was pretty nervous as well because I li- again I, I don't I wouldn't have judged those guys to do anything cruel or or, or, yeah, or yeah. piss takey anyway, but I had no clue of what they were going. I had no yeah, idea yeah, what yeah. they were doing. I didn't know whether they'd had a few and they were just sort of going, "Is this dude? What well, I don't know, whatever you know." No, I I, so met, I was I met, just I was. I met Dave and and Taylor because we, we did a TV show with Spandau Valley in the when we got back together in the two thousands uh, two thousand ten. And and they came straight up to us. Mm. They are British pop eighties obsessives. Yeah. While they mm-hmm. before they did all of their their grunge stuff. Yeah. That's what they were into as kids. No, the, totally. Well, you know, well, you MTV know, and the you're, thing. You're somebody you know very well, Toby on keys. Yeah. Toby Chapman. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Toby was with us that time because we we'd gone through this thing of whatever. So Toby came to play keys for us, and when they found out Toby. The play was with you guys and played with you. They were like, they, were, they just couldn't believe it. They were like, oh my God. And they were like singing Spandau Valley songs and all the rest of it. And <laughs> and it was just, I, I 100% agree. One of the things I do love about them actually is I know they're a rock band. It, it says that on the tin, you know what I mean? They are a rock band, absolutely. But in their playing and obviously their influences and the way they go about it and everything, it it's like they're an everything band. If you know what I mean, yeah. it just comes out with a rock sort of well, no, edge there's a to real, it because there's, it's there's a real pop sensibility to the writing. Yeah, musicality like, yeah. is yeah. crazy. It's like it's, and I've always thought that, and that's you know a lot of their songs as well because, I, like I say, I, I still I still kind of put my headphones on and drum to records all the time because I like it. You know, I've got real kits, but I've got an electric kit as well because of the neighbours and 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 a lot of their stuff is stuff that I'll I'll I can't keep up with it. I can't do it, but I'll, I enjoy it because it's. It's technically amazing. It's a bit like when I, when I was young trying to play the police. It stretches you because it's mm-hmm. like it's something different. The time signatures and the way they accent things and go about stuff is it's just really technical. Yeah. Uh, well, technical is perhaps not right, but it, it's just really musical. Let's say, yeah, inventive. And, um, yeah, inventive. Rick, yeah, and, yeah. Rick, what's what's next for you? Um, we are going to America um, to do a load of gigs, and this is this is kind of a crazy one, but I'm really looking forward to it. I've been invited by um, New Kids on the Block. They've done this a few few years running now, I think, or every few years. Salt and Pepper and On Vogue. So I, I'm all over that in terms of songs and wow. everything. Yeah. Um, so old, the four of us are going to been around the block a few times. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh yeah, New Kids on the Block. I get it. They did. Um, uh, they they covered. Uh... They covered a song that I I was part of. Uh, the, oh, really? Uh, Set adrift on memory bliss was on their big album. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay. New Kids yeah. on the Block. Get to oh, dig right. it out. Yeah, yeah, massive. Yeah. And um, and uh, it's going to be a lot. I mean, it, one of the fun things, and what, something that I I sort of it's really weird because I kind of really miss it, but I'm also unbelievably grateful that the record fifty and what I've been since then, I've been able to sort of go out and do bigger gigs myself and sort of go and just you know do my own whatever. Um, but I've done loads of gigs with other artists where you only play your hits, and yes, it's retro, it's a trip down memory lane, and. I kind of love it, and I've start. I've stood at the side of the stage with artists' records. Sorry, with artists that I've bought and loved their records, and know them note for note. And I'm about, or have just been on stage, the stage they're on. Like Level Forty Two is one of my all-time favourites. Yeah, because you co-wrote I, I, with you Mark wrote King. Song with I did, Mark. I did, yeah. I did yeah. and and I think again, he's one of those. He's an animal. That guy. He's an animal. He can play anything. He's the most unassuming. He talks in such a way about his musicianship that it's like, yeah, 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 well, I just this and I just that. And uh, he's a crazy drummer, uh, great guitar player, to be honest. I don't know about, you know, 
widdly widdly but in terms of like his chops playing the guitar just great and that you know level 42 were definitely one of the bands that we all aspired to in terms of you know they were just amazing musicians and and it was it was allowed it was allowed to be a That's great right. musician in pop music it was like these guys can actually do it and 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 again you guys know all about it you know you, you you've been there and done it and all the rest of it we're in a we're in a moment where there are some great musicians there are some great bands there's some great there's always something great of course there is but the 80s has got a really weird thing because the beginning and the middle of the 80s was very very much about artists being musicians and the end of it and unfortunately unfortunately i'm definitely part of the end of it that sort of drifted away it went totally pop and just like just sing the song love we don't really care whether you can play whether you we don't care if you can read to be honest or you can talk we're not really bothered as long as and you then the, the early song, 90s with the uber a and r men like you know simon yeah Cowell. yeah yeah and it's just so and listen, I don't have an axe to grind, I don't have anything. I'm just saying that's part of the rich tapestry of it all, I guess. But a lot of those gigs that I've done, like the Rewinds and whatever, Henley and different things like that, um, you know, ABC. My God, did I love some of yeah. their records. And I've got to know Martin a bit and hung out with him and all the rest of it. And, you know, and obviously Tony as well and, you know, and your records and, you know, just, just records that... Um, but, but you're doing just, you're doing the Smiths now, aren't you? Just yeah. quickly before before we have to say goodbye <laughs> yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I don't like doing the Smiths now, but yeah, I did. It's a long story. I did a podcast, funnily enough. So that, that you be careful, guys. You never know what can happen on the podcast. Um, with Blossoms, which is a, a band from uh, Manchester area, and um, we got talking about influences and what this that, and the other. And I said, you know, as a younger younger guy, one of my brothers was really into the Smiths, and I really got into it as well, and. I think later on in life, I always had this dream that at some point in my life, I'd just go and do a set of Smith songs just for the fun of it, because I do it in the car all the time. I was building a shed this year, actually, or last year, I should say, and that I just went through, I went through catalogs. I love doing, I love doing it. And um, where well, you go to the very beginning of someone's career and just listen to every every record they ever made. <laughs> and um, anyway, so I was doing the Slate Roof, get me, and. Um, it was lockdown. We did a lot of crazy things. And I just listened to the whole Smiths back catalogue and I mentioned my love of the Smiths to Blossoms and said, at some point in my life, I want to go on a stage and just sing their tunes. People will slate me for it. They'll kill me for it. They'll do everything what, but I just don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. So anyway, something must have been seeded there because a couple of weeks later, um, they got in touch and said, well, we'll be the band. <laughs> so, so they were doing um, some gigs and I got up with them and we sang a couple of tunes. We did this Charming Man, obviously. I can't remember what the other tune we did, actually. It might have been Panic, maybe. And that was to announce that we were doing the gigs because I'd secretly gone up to their rehearsal room up in Stockport and we'd, and we'd thrashed through a few of the songs. And we all just looked at each other and said, we're going to get absolutely fucking murdered for this, but we don't care. And, and, and so we, we just said, right, we're doing it. And we did them and we did two gigs. We did one in London and one in Manchester. And it was just incredible. It was just amazing. And I understand that, and I really do. I really, really empathise and all the rest of it with people who were horrified by it. No. I just don't, I just don't care, <laughs> to be honest. I loved it. But, and, but, you know, 
Yeah. I think this is probably a good time to say goodbye to this yeah. charming man then, isn't it? Go oh, on. there you go. That's pro, isn't it? Don't panic. But, um, That's probably the sort of thing Eamon Holmes might say as a single. Indeed, yeah. indeed. I, lo- I love, your, I love yeah. your banter between the two. It's, it's working well. Mate, well. mate, having you on has been incredible. And yeah, we've gone really way great. over our usual time. And oh. I think that's because you are a raconteur. Yes. <laughs> Listen, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And I love the show, by the way. I'm not just saying that. Giles, who, you know, obviously mentioned some time ago, actually, that he was doing this thing. I said, oh, check that out. It sounds interesting. And I've listened to loads of them. And I really, really enjoy it. It's a... It's a it's one of the things it's made me do is listen to records again. And, and if nothing else, even though it's great, by the way, just listening to the show, but if nothing else, it stopped me in my tracks going, there's no way he played that on that. There's no way somebody did that. And I go back to the record and I go, bugger me, they did. <laughs> and I've loved it. I've absolutely loved it. Oh, it's been, Thanks, it's Rick, a treat. Man. It really is. Oh, what? Well, wow. gave Joe Elliott a run for his money there. I mean, what, yeah. a, what a lovely, affable man with... with, with what a story. I know, just endless stories. And and also, the, uh, Camel? Who would have thought Camel That's were so one of his first That's so bands? Funny. Especially after we, we we thought we had to get the prog out of the way in the intro. No one thought they'd be listening to the Rick Astley episode and going off and listening to the Snow Goose, did they? Exactly, but they will. And that's why you need to keep it here, people. You do, you do. Because and as, a, as Rick said, you know, you, you can learn so you're going to go back to so many records by listening to our show. Uh, and we hope you listen again next week and uh, loads of nice messages coming up on social media. Send some questions in. We, we would love to answer them. Will we? Well, I might. You might, <laughs> yes, you might get yes, the arm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they'll all be for you. <laughs> um, so good. We we say goodbye then. We say goodbye. It's, yeah, that was. Thanks so much. Thanks to Ben, our producer. Thanks to all of you for listening. And uh, good night from me. And it's good night from all of us. Mm-hmm.